here that doesn't like poetry? There's nobody that don't like poetry. Okay, because I've got a couple. Hebrews 12 verse 5. We've discussed that here just recently, but maybe not to the depth that we should have. The fact that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receiveth. And if you receive chastening, then you're truly sons of God. If you don't, you can't claim God as your father if you will not allow him to get after you and to correct the things that's wrong in your life. And we know how God does that. One way that he does it is through the trials and tribulations of life of which James says that we're supposed to rejoice in. Now, it's, it's uh, hard to comprehend at first glance that it's hard to comprehend, it's hard to uh, see the benefit of suffering, but actually suffering is our best friend. If suffering causes me to bend my knees to the cross of Christ, then suffering is my best friend. Uh, if suffering helps me serve him better as a bond slave, one that's bought with a price, then suffering is my best friend. And so here is a poem that a fellow penned. Uh, he put it in poetic form, and I like the form, because you can generally remember uh, a, poet, a poem better than you can just somebody telling you the truth about something. So he penned in poetic form uh, the vital purpose that's served by trials and tribulations that we all have to go through. And incidentally, you young folks, you're just embarking on a world of trouble. <clears throat> trouble in River City. You gotta be prepared for it. You gotta understand why and see the love of God in all of it. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son. But listen to this poem. He sat by the fire of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. And the closer he bent with searching gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test, and he wanted the final gold, the finest gold, to mold as a crown for the king to wear, set with gems with a price on <coughs> And so we laid our gold in the burning fire, though we fain would have told him nay, and he watched the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright, but our eyes were so dim with tears, we saw but the fire and not the master's hand and questioned with anxious fears. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bent over the fire, though unseen by us, with a look of infallible love. Can we think that it pleases his loving heart to cause a moment's pain? Ah, no. But he saw through the present cross the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye and with a love that is strong and sure and his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. I got another one. This is one that blends in with Thanksgiving, a day of Thanksgiving. 
Uh, and it deals with Hebrews 12, verse 5, the trials and the tests that God intends we undergo as a disciplinary action by which we take on the divine nature. And the poet, he said, mid pleasure, plenty, and success, freely we took from him who bless. We boast the blessings we possess, yet scarcely thank the one who sins. But let affliction pour its smart, how soon we quail beneath the rod. With scattered uh, pride and prostrate heart, we seek the long-forgotten God. It's only when the rod comes on us that we begin to recognize the Father. That's sad, isn't it? This morning we're going to look at the uh, a parable Jesus told the Jews found in Luke 13, verse 6 through 9, uh, the parable about the barren fig tree. Now you've had me, you've heard me mention this quite a few times here lately because it's been on my mind. There's an awesome truth taught in this parable that I'm afraid we overlook when we read it. The general theme of this uh, parable is the privileges and the duties of disciples. If you'd be a disciple of the Lord, this parable talks about your privileges and your duties of producing fruit. And then the major lesson is the responsibility of fruit-bearing repentance. You know, we live a life in Christ of continued repentance. We're always stepping in, we sing that song, stepping in the light. I forget what the song is. Stepping in the light, how beautiful to walk. Yeah, there it is. We're always stepping ahead, stepping in the light as we progress and mature. And as we do, there's a the show of repentance there. As we repent from dead works and, and uh, a dormant faith a little bit from yesterday and we will tomorrow and every day of our life. All right, so that will be its major lesson. Now, the first thing we want to do is look at this song. Uh, I'll read it first. I almost forgot to read it. Luke 13, verse 6 through 9. Jesus spake this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering uh, said unto him, his Lord, Let it alone this year also till I dig about it and, and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. But if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Now the first thing we're going to do is look at the setting here in regard to Jesus speaking this parable. So I'll try to list these things so you can get a, uh, you can follow along in your notes. But here in a few minutes we're just going to be talking about the, the background, the setting that gave rise to this uh, parable. All right, what was the setting? Some individuals tell Jesus of Pilate's killing uh, Galilean worshipers at the altar of the temple, and, their, and he mixed the, their blood with animals of the sacrifice blood. 
and uh, they may have assumed that a deed was so adequate, evidently, of the worshiper's sinfulness. Otherwise, why did it happen? We wonder that same thing. Why do certain things happen to an individual? Did he sin? Is that why it happened? Uh, Or uh, they may have been thinking, as Job's friends did, that such suffering is uh, proper punishment for sin. Maybe that's what brought on, was the background to this parable. That's what Job's friends did. You remember? Uh, Eliphaz the Teomite started it off as they sat there. They came to bemoan Job and his suffering. And they watched him for seven days. And there he said a word. It was so awesome. His suffering was. He sits there on an ash heap with a piece of broken pottery scraping his, his uh, cancerous boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And they came to bemoan him. And they had this concept that if a man sinned, God punished him. And so evidently, this, this could have been the background here in the first part of chapter 13. Uh, because... Uh, Notice what verse 1 says. There were present at that season some that told him, told the Lord, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Suppose ye that these uh, Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? And that's what we think a lot of times. That's what Job's friends thought. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And that gave rise to this parable. The Jews needed to repent because having eyes to see, they refused to see. Having ears to hear, they refused to hear. They had no excuse for rejecting the Lord because they had the law and the prophets. (coughs) And so this parable was actually uh, a judgment of the Israelite nation because they had no fruit. When Jesus come, they had no fruit. They was plowing along in their own manner of self-righteousness. They had no fruit to give praise to God. They was opposed to him. They was against him. Workers of iniquity. Hmm? Called the workers of iniquity. Yeah. And so, uh, at least from the reply of Jesus, uh, such thinking seems evident that that's what they thought that these people suffered because of their sin. And Jesus said, oh, no, 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 no. And he tells them, no, they didn't sin, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. He told them that twice in those two stories. So that set the background. Uh, That was the setting in which Jesus told this parable of the fig tree. Now, here in this setting, uh, Jesus added the story of the 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, killed them. Perhaps another recent event that they was uh, confronted with. And here the disciples, it'd be very natural for them to ask the Lord, why did this happen to them? Did they sin? Is that why it happened? And that's what we think a lot of times. When something drastic happens, we just automatically assume, well, a brother must have done something that God didn't like. Yet verse 3 and verse 5, 
Jesus used both episodes to teach the importance of repentance. See, the Jews would have been accepted if they had repented, but they fought the Lord all the way through and had him crucified. And so his, he affirms here that though these two cases in the first few verses of this chapter do not automatically assume sin on the part of the victims and God's punishment upon the impenitent, he does affirm that the unrepented will be judged and punished for their wrongs. <coughs> and he affirms that the worst fate is in store for unconverted sinners because he said ye shall all likewise perish under divine judgment. So this case here may be analogous to uh, John 9 in a case where Jesus uh, uh, disclaimed sin as a cause of the blindness uh, but rather it happened to this man uh, that God's glory might be seen. Turn over to John the ninth chapter and let's look at that for a minute as it helps us to understand the parable here. John the ninth chapter Verse 1. And as Jesus passed by and saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples are showing how we look at things. Why is this man blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but rather that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And so there's things that happen to men that are not the punishment of God. Uh, they happen to show the glory of God. Now, if you suffer as a Christian, and Peter said you, that's it. That's the way you ought to go. If any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. Uh, that suffrage is going to manifest what? It's going to manifest your faith. Is it going to teach anybody? Is it going to be beneficial? Oh, yeah. And so, a lot of these things happen for the glory of God that the glory of God might be seen in them. That's what Jesus said. He hadn't sinned, the man born blind, and neither had his parents. But rather that the glory of God might be seen. Of course, this is the time of miracles, and that's Jesus' purpose, is to uh, manifest in a miraculous way uh, the fact that he's the Son of God. <clears throat> and the setting here is a dire need for repentance and that's why Jesus spoke this parable you see an obligation laid before all you remember Jesus used the word all there except you repent you shall all likewise perish uh, lest ye all perish he said and that gives rise to the following parable on repentance. <coughs> well, let's look at an explanation of the details that are essential to understand this, this uh, parable. Explanation of details. Again, I want to put this on the board so you get a note. Uh, uh, you get it in your notes.
And so there Jesus cursed a barren fig tree, even though it was not the season of figs. Uh, and perhaps he done that to teach the disciples that his people were not to be allowed seasons of fruitlessness. You can't take a vacation in Christ. You're obligated, not just 10 months, but 12 months out of the year. Maybe that's the reason. And as Mark 11, verse 20 through 22 indicates, Jesus used the event to teach them to have faith in God so as to remove mountains. Uh, Mark 11, uh, verse 20 through 22. And again he said, Where? That ain't it, Mark 11. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. The Lord cursed it a minute ago in the early part of this chapter. We just read. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answered, saying unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto you, say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he uh, saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. And so he took this occasion to teach him to have faith in God, and the fact that faith can do whatever God wants it to do in you. Now he's not teaching that you go out here and speak to the mountain that it be cast into the sea. But he's showing that the, the faith in God and his ability to answer your prayer, if it's in his will, is unlimited. Even to the removing of mountains. That's quite a, a drastic show, isn't it? Uh, if you were teaching someone about the power of God's faith, in, uh, the faith we have in God. <coughs> Fig trees were an Old Testament symbol of peace and prosperity. And you've read it and probably never paid much attention to it. In 1 Kings 4, verse 25, uh, one of you men read that for me. First Kings 4, verse 25. And Judah and Israel <coughs> dwelt safely under every man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan <coughs> to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. I'll part of three. Uh, just 25. Alright, so it shows there's one passage that shows in the Old Testament a fig tree was a figure, a symbol of peace and prosperity because in Solomon's time it was said, and Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Every man safely under his vine and under his fig tree. Uh, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And so there's no longer required to live in fortified cities behind walls because of the peace and the tranquility. Uh, but out in the open fields, dwelling safely, uh, even there under their fig trees. It's just a, a, a point about the fig tree. Uh, this fig was a cultivated plant. It wasn't wild. Uh, it was deliberately set out in the vineyard, and it fully and fully expected to produce fruit for the owner. That's why he planted it. Uh, in Isaiah 63, 
excuse me, Isaiah 61 and verse 3, God's people are called trees of righteousness, comma, the planting of Jehovah, comma, that he may be glorified. In other words, that our fruit that we bear is to his glory as we produce, as we uh, possess his spirit that he gives us, that spirit that Galatians talks about. Paul talks about in Galatians. Spirit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law, Paul says. The spirit of God. And Paul makes it clear in Romans uh, 5, verse 8, if you have not the Spirit of God, you're none of His. So if you have the Spirit of God, you're going to produce fruit, aren't you? Do you have to figure out how to do this? <coughs> no. It's an automatic <coughs> thing, isn't it? Does, uh, does, the, uh, does this tree have to sit down and think about how it's going to produce fruit? God made it capable and able to produce its fruit in its season. And so, Isaiah 61.3, God's people are called trees of righteousness, the planting of Jehovah, to the intent that he may be glorified. And also, Isaiah 60, verse 21, uh, it says, Thy people also shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. Now, the land there doesn't mean the dirt. You understand that. You've probably made a study of that. If you haven't, you need to. The land promise. Remember Jesus in the, in the Beatitudes? Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. He is not talking in any way about dirt. But you go back to the Old Testament and you find out, you look up the word land. <clears throat> land promise. That became a proverb to the Jews about any blessings that God had to offer. That's all it meant. And of course the Jehovah Witnesses, look at there, boys going to bless us with our land. Has nothing to do with land. Has to do with the blessings of God. That's all. It was a proverb and Jesus used it. But here it's, it's used and you can find many other occasions where it's used. The people also uh, uh, be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting. And so this fig tree is the branch of God's planting. The work of my hands. And I like that statement that it makes there in Isaiah 60. We are the work of his hands. We didn't do anything to become righteous. We didn't. We just... We just got to assume, consume with the love of God. What does Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 say? For by grace are you saved through your faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a work of God, lest any man should boast. For we, the Christian, the man of God, the performer, and the fruits we bear, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He, he done the work, see? And he created us. Uh, so Isaiah 60 says that we're the wor uh, work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And that's what happens when we take on the Spirit of Christ, isn't it? We glorify our Maker. All right, the fig tree represents Israel in this parable. But Israel menaced by divine judgment because of her unfaithfulness. Now, Matthew 23, what did Jesus tell the Jews in the latter part of that chapter? He said, how can you escape the damnation of hell? They had no excuse. They should have produced fruit to the glory of God. Rather, they killed the Son of God. <laughs> in Matthew 3 and verse 10 
The Jews uh, can expect uh, God's judgment because it said Jesus said, even now the axe lieth at the root of the trees. And he was talking about the Jewish nation. God had put up with them. We've talked about that, you know. In 721, he destroyed ten tribes. You can read about it in 1 Kings 17. He destroyed them because of their rebellion. And then it says at the end of that, it says in that chapter, in chapter 17, uh, that Judah was worse than Israel. How come God didn't destroy them? You remember why? The ruler's staff would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Exactly. Genesis 49.10 God in patience, in showing us his patience with Judah, he was showing us his loving kindness and his willingness to, uh, like with this tree, to wait another year before it's destroyed. But the Lord had already talked about their destruction because of their fruitlessness. And so Israel must repent, and that's what he called on them to do in that parable. Twice he said that, repent, else you shall all likewise perish. And so Israel must repent or be hewn down. Uh, uh, the awesome cut it down, uh, as it says there in our parables this morning, Cut it down. Why doth it also cumber the ground that hangs very heavy on the Jews? Cut it down. The axe is laid at the tree. Now the owner of this vineyard uh, or this orchard is Jehovah. In John 15 verse 1 and following, Jehovah is the husbandman or the owner. In Jeremiah verse 32 Jehovah had been a husband unto, uh, unto them unto Israel yet they didn't listen to him they paid him no heed now the vine dresser in this parable is Jesus he pleads for Israel's salvation through repentance uh, so he said this in behalf of all those disciples that followed him that would listen to him. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You see, they thought because they was Israelites that they were God's people. <coughs> you know, if a person's blinded with this idea, I'm God's people. You asked them, you, you remember the church? Are, are you saved? Are you a member of the Lord's church? Are you, absolutely. Well... <laughs> That may be a fact, and it may not, based on this word. But if they're not willing to study and humbly present themselves under the mighty hand of God, they'll never be exalted. They never will. Because that's a law. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you, lift you up set you high in in your producing fruit and glorifying him. And so Jesus, uh, he pleads for Israel's salvation through repentance because he had sent the apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who he sent them to on a limited commission. You remember? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel is lost. You remember Jesus told them in Matthew 17, I think it was, that they were teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. He repeatedly through his ministry had to correct the Jews on their misunderstanding of the law. They condemned him for him and his disciples for gathering corn on the Sabbath. They condemned him for eating with unwashed hands. They condemned him for healing a person on a Sabbath day, remember? And the Lord had to tell him on that occasion, look, uh, don't you see in the law a provision there that if your ox falls in the ditch, you can go help him out of the ditch on a Sabbath day? 
saying, how much more helping this person that I just healed? So they didn't understand the law. They had screwed it all up, but they were a very religious people. Paul said in Romans 10 verse 1, My heart's desire for Israel that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a tremendous zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. All right, so uh, he had sent the apostles, Jesus had, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10, verse 5, if you want to put that in your notes. Now, he didn't send him to, uh, the, the apostles to the Samaritans or the Gentiles. He sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because they're represented here as this fig tree that was God's planting that should have produced peace and security as we saw that the fig that was his uh, way it was used in the Old Testament. And it didn't. They didn't. And so in uh, Matthew 23, uh, Jesus cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and killest all them that sin unto thee. Many of the times, and he's talking about through history, for fourth, uh, well, ever since there was a nation, since Genesis 12, when God showed Abraham, who was the father of the Israelites. And Jesus, being an eternal being, he was telling them many of the times in history, would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. They were the ones in rebellion. They were the ones that was never in covenant relation with God. All right, so in Matthew 23, verse 37, uh, it indicates his plea for their salvation. Uh, but he says, but since ye would not respond to Jesus, since they wouldn't, then he said in verse 38, your house is left unto you desolate. And then later he made the statement a few verses later, after 38, I think it is, he said, uh, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Isn't it on down there, son? 39 is the last verse of that chapter. Okay, well then it was right there at the end of that chapter he said that. I didn't write the verse down. Uh, so, uh, 33. 33, okay. So fruit in this parable would be faith in Jesus and repentance is in view of the coming kingdom that the Jews rejected. Uh, and notice uh, the delay in destroying or cutting this tree down in the parable. Uh, here is the patience of God toward the impenitent. Have you ever thought about the patience God had with you? And the lack of fruit that you've ever, that you never produced? And somehow, somehow, most professing Christians gets it in their mind that because we're baptized, we can now lay back in the hammock of life and expect to be saved on and on. There has to be that fruit. That fruit is an automatic response. Uh, you go over to John, the 15th chapter, and Jesus said very clearly, you can do nothing except by me. And so our production of fruit is an automatic thing as we take on his spirit. It isn't something we come, I've got a program, I'll come up with this wise plan. No, uh, that don't have anything to do with our righteous performance and our production of fruit. We believe in Jesus. We produce fruit out here. Our neighbors see our devotion to Christ. They see our love for Christ that succeeds any love in this world. <coughs> Love not the things of this world. I don't know 
forgot how that's quoted now. Love not the world, neither the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in them. <coughs> in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, uh, God says, As I live, saith the Lord Jehovah, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? And so the axe was laid at the tree, and Jesus was calling on them Jews to repent, except you perish. You shall all likewise perish unless you repent. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, uh, Peter said that God is long-suffering, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's why you read at the last of that parable, he waited another year and dung it and fertilized it and gave it another chance before we cut it down and burned it. Revelation 2, verse 21. Even the wicked Jezebel is mentioned there in the church at Thyatira. Uh, God, the Lord said, I gave her time that she should repent, and she willeth not to repent. And so here was her hard-headedness. She willed not to repent. That's what he said. And he said also, I gave her uh, time that she should repent. And when you read that, you can't help but feel the stripes as you reminisce how long has God dealt with me. He gave me time to repent. Well, thank God I did. But look at the graciousness of God. And all the time he waited patiently, standing at the door knocking, inviting me to open the door and he'd come in with me and sup with me and me with him. <clears throat> Alright, so the command that he gave to cut it down is God's judgment on the Jews. And uh, uh, primarily that was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. When Titus, a Roman general, laid siege against Jerusalem and starved them people out and killed them. That was God's wrath upon the Jew. He had finally had enough of them. He tolerated them from 721 when he destroyed the ten tribes. He tolerated them to teach us a lesson of his faithfulness to his covenant. That the ruler's staff wouldn't depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And in that, he was showing us his faithfulness. And then when, they, uh, and then when Jesus come, look what he told the Jews, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Those three gospel accounts talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Lord in his patience warned them again. Warned them again. He's warning them here in this parable that we're looking at of the fig tree that didn't produce, had no fruit. And they needed to repent of that. And how many in the church needs to repent of the dormancy of their lives because they have this concept. I've been baptized. I don't need to do anything. I'm saved. Hallelujah. And they go right out and they spend all week for the material things of this world. They don't even, they, they like the stories that's on television so they don't open their Bible. Kind of sounds like a Jew, doesn't it? So when we're looking at Israel, the Jew, we're kind of looking at a, in a mirror, aren't we? Because we're the same as they were under that first covenant. Only we're under the second covenant as his children. 
Okay, so the command to cut it down was primarily fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and ultimately to be fulfilled at the final judgment. In Hebrews 6, verse 7 and 8, uh, you read there uh, his words, the land is rejected at Calvary and nigh to a curse in A.D. 70, and whose end is to be burned eternally, as he spoke to the Jews, as Paul spoke to the Jews. Now, let's look at the application of this uh, parable. We've been looking at it and mixing them all up, but uh, we'll put some order back in it. Number five would be the application. Well, I didn't know that, Paul. Isn't that 